Hi everybody, welcome back to the Loop Podcast. Uh, my name's Jamie, I'm Senior Demand Generation Manager here at Cognizant. Um, again, welcome back to the Loop. This is the podcast where B2B marketers can stay in the loop with everything they need to know about reaching buyers um, today. Um, I'm thrilled to be joined today by Drew Leahy, um, Head of Product Marketing at Hockey Stat. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Thank you. Happy to be here. Cool. Perfect. Today, we're going to be talking about why emotions and memory are so important in B2B marketing. Um, so just to get started, Drew, um, can you give us a little bit of introduction to yourself, um, your role at Hockey yeah. Stat, and just give us some background on um, what you're doing there? Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Drew, happy to meet everybody. Um, I'm head of product marketing at Hockey Stack. I'm going on, I'm just about to finish my first 90 there. So it's been a relatively short experience. But before that, I've been in marketing for, uh, I think I'm coming up on 12 years now. So I'm, I'm kind of a dinosaur in this industry uh, <laughs> now. You know, it's crazy. All the people I work with are usually a lot younger than me. But um, yeah, I think uh, I've done a lot of things in marketing. I, I started in PR and then I, then I got my first agency gig in SEO and then uh, became a content marketing manager. My background's in writing. I went to school to be a writer. So I always wanted to be in a place where I, I could leverage that skill. Um, and then I worked my way up over the years into various different director roles at different agencies, had my own business. Uh, but I feel like I've always found myself in that role where I was working on longer term marketing and, and you know trying to reach and influence out market buyers in advance of purchase. That's kind of always been my sweet spot. I think it probably plays most to that skill set of, you know, um, communication versus I, I've never been like a short term marketing guy, like paid ads just never really got me excited. So I've always lived in this kind of brand longer term demand space. So, uh, so yeah. Cool. Perfect. Yeah, I agree. I think the numbers, the numbers and the, 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 the paid ad side of things, I, I'm interested in it. It's definitely a big part of my role. Um, but it's not what really switches me on as a marketer as well. Um, yeah, I think we've got some shared ground there. Um, yeah. That's where it's like the marketing. It's like to, if you're doing Google ads, especially it's like, is that like if someone's coming in, going through a Google ad, like it, did marketing really do their job? You know, I, I don't want to make anybody mad here, but I think the marketing part needs to come before that. Right. Because yeah. if someone's just if you're just getting in front of that person who's who's looking to buy right now, then the marketing marketing didn't do their job. So. I yeah. feel like marketing is that longer term piece. Yeah, Sales I've, is more I've of that longer term piece. A lot before where it's sort of been described like the Google ad is like digital shelf space, basically. Um, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the role it really plays. But yeah, I mean, yeah. opening a can of worms. <laughs> before we even, right. <laughs> I know, I know. I had too early, too early in the conversation. <laughs> um, I actually think a great place to start um, this podcast is actually, so obviously um, I actually became aware of you, I think it was, well, it must be a year to 18 months ago now. Um, and I'd seen you talk a lot about these topics, about the role of memory in marketing, building memory structures, how you can use brands to sort of influence that and the role of emotion in that as well. Um, I think what would be interesting, actually, and it's something I've, also, I've seen you talk about online, is sort of what actually brought you to be uh, interested in those topics and connected with those topics? Because I think you started off, like you said, in sort of like a content marketing role or yeah in a, very much a traditional content marketing role and it's very much developed to a point where you're talking about these things quite regularly so i suppose it'd be quite cool to hear sort of what brought you to this and sort of like why you're here talking about this now yeah good good question i i, I know exactly what brought me to that it was you know I, I i you probably heard me say this on linkedin before but you know good content doesn't necessarily mean good marketing yeah so the the 
earlier part of my career, that first half of my career was just all about creating amazing content and develop my developing my writing skills for like long form blogs to copywriting to messaging to creating ebooks to design to everything so i was like oh i'm going to create all this great content and everything's going to be fine um but then you realize like great content doesn't necessarily mean good marketing and there needs to be some fundamental principles underpinning all this stuff to make it work and i didn't know what the, those were so i i had a, inevitably which i think like a lot of marketers this is a natural journey where we enter in the tactical digital space but eventually we have to move upstream towards more strategic positions if we want to become a leader or director in our department but we also need to be able to connect what we're doing on the tactical side to like foundational principles that make marketing work. And so you move upstream to figure out what those foundational principles are, because in the tactical space online, it's very much anecdotal. It's not very science-based and it's, it's more about like, I think when, when people create a lot of really good content and it quote unquote works that they don't actually know why it works. Mm. Um, and if you look, if you, when you start learning those principles of like why it actually works, then, then you can start influencing your, your content a little more and, and, and make it work even better. So that was a journey I went down, um, for some years where I just wanted to be a marketer. I didn't want to call myself a content marketer, an SEO, um, an, an insert modifier marketer. You know, I didn't, I didn't want that label. I just wanted to say, I want to be a marketer. So I went down this path of just like learning as much as I could about historical marketing. I read hundreds of books on strategy on differentiation on positioning. And then, you know, I discovered, I know we've chatted about this too, but I've discovered, uh, people like Byron Sharp and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute of Marketing Science. People are like, uh, Peter Field, Les Bennett, um, and a lot of econometrician work that was bringing a lot of really good science to marketing and, in this science with their, you know, longitudinal studies that they were doing, they were able to extract very, very good reasons why things worked when they did. And a lot of their research, um, kind of rest on this, at least the, their, their brand research rests on this whole emotional component and how emotions are really good at creating strong memories and how strong memories are fundamental to growing a brand or reaching an influence out market buyers before they move in market. Because at the end of the day, the goal is really to, if you want to increase the probability that someone's going to buy from you first, you need to increase the probability that they're going to consider you. Mm. And if you have not reached them in advance of per in, in advance of purchase and created some kind of strong association with what you sell and how you can help in a memory or memories in, in such a way that they remember you when you move in market, then you have a hard hard chance of getting into that limited consideration set. So, so for me, yeah, I guess long story long, it was really a journey about like, how do I, like, I can, I felt like I was a good communicator. I can write well, I have good copy. I can do all these things, but like, but like, what do they really need to do? Like to make sure that this stuff works for, for a business long term. And that's where I found all that, that, uh, marketing science had a real existential crisis. Cause a lot of that science you confront is like, really going to like you have i think marketers have some really strong world views that are baked in like things that feel right but that actually when you look at the science they're kind of wrong um we can go in a rabbit hole on that but yeah. um i i had this big existential crisis where i was like whoa like this this doesn't work the way i thought it worked yeah. <laughs> at all um and then and then yeah you figure out you figure out you follow the science you figure out how it works and then you try to bring that science into 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 your brand creative and so that you can 
you know, hopefully that the goal is that you're not just creating good content, you're creating good marketing as well. Yeah. I think that's, that's the trap that a lot of marketers fall into. And I think everyone falls into at some point is that you can be creating content for content's sake. And then to be honest, it can look like it's working <laughs> because you can pump yeah. up, you can pump up so many metrics and you can, you can, and it can really reach people and can resonate and you get the, the feedback where everyone's like, oh, I love this. It's amazing. Uh, and it can look like it's working, but if it's not connected to an overarching goal or trying to accomplish something that actually leads to the business outcomes that yeah. we're, we're all looking for as marketers, then it is at its core. Like it's, it's not completely like not of value, but it's not ultimately what we're trying to achieve. Um, and I think that is yeah. the tricky balance that a lot of marketers are struggling to find. Um, and I think that's where what you were talking about a minute ago with a lot of the marketing science stuff, that's kind of the framework that um, you've espoused to try and sort of actually tie it back into that, um, which is what sort yeah. of brought me into your realm in the first place. Um, but I actually think- Yeah, that's the-, the, the- I was going to say the marketing science, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very regional. It's, it's strange. And I think it's because it's where the marketing science comes from. Like the, the, the predominant, the, the really good marketing science is coming out of Australia and Great Britain, right? UK, uh, not so much the United States. So I've noticed that like the B2B marketers in the United States are do have no idea that this stuff exists as much as I try to remind them, right? Like you can ask yeah. most like digital B2B marketers stateside, like who is Byron Sharp? And they're going to be like, I have no idea. Like, what, what are you talking about? Or like, have you read the book, how brands grow or like, uh, and not, not saying that everything like, we have to agree with everything Byron Sharp says, cause there's a lot of things I think that are different in B2B and they don't really go deep into B2B, Yeah. but even still like there, there's a, there's a big mix. There's a big gap in, in what American marketers understand about marketing science and what I think UK and in Australia. Yeah. I actually think understands that's as well. that splits across industry as well. And, and obviously, like you said, B2C and B2B, like I, I don't think in SaaS, yeah. it's a particularly, yeah. these ideas are particularly like widespread um, from people like Byron Sharp, Erebo Bass, et cetera. Um, yeah. And yeah. Anyone, anyone who is listening, I would highly recommend checking that out. Cause it does give you another way. You don't have to agree with like, like Drew said, I don't think you have to agree with everything they say but it does give you another way to think about marketing um, and does yeah. give you a framework that I do think is helpful. Um, but yeah, I do want to actually go back to something you just said um, to sort of like move the conversation forward was about the role of memory um, and the importance of memory in the buying process. So I suppose for someone who doesn't spend much time dwelling on this, maybe um, like why is it important to be memorable and what is the role like why does being memorable um, and being remembered actually increase the chance of me uh, increase the chance of my product being bought um yeah yeah so um you've got to think about all of the the different brands and I, I we're we're all basically working in commoditized markets or increasingly working towards commoditized markets mm. where there's so many so many competitors and so different trying to get attention for so many different people that um you know if, if you can't find a way to not just get recognized once because that's not that hard to do but like get and not just be remembered, be remembered for the right things too, you know, that, that we should put that modifier on there, on there too. So, yeah. you know, it's one thing I, I use the example of, of Salesforce where Salesforce did a lot of research a, a few years back, not too long ago. And they figured out like, Hey, we have a really 
we have an awareness problem, which I think a lot of marketers would say like, what are you talking about? You, we have an awareness problem. Like everybody knows who Salesforce is and everybody does know who Salesforce was, but that there was a breakdown in the association, right? So people remembered that Salesforce existed, right? If someone asked them, Hey, have you heard of these brands? They could say, yes, yeah, Salesforce hundred uh, percent. But they didn't know what Salesforce sold. Like a lot of B2B marketers who were their target buyers didn't know what they sold or might have only known that they had some form of CRM, but not loads of other things as well. So so they had to put together this entire brand campaign that really built associations, memories, but also memories attached to associations about what they do, how they help so that people can remember them when they move in market. So I think the the role tying back to how important memories are here is it's going back to what I was saying about getting into that consideration set. I mean, that's really getting a seat at the table is most of the battle because one, buyers are constantly looking for shortcuts. We're desperate to look for shortcuts. Like even in a complex B2B buying situation, like I said, there's a lot of options. Um, we're looking for anything to 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 make that decision-making process uh, faster and easier, right? So if you can come to mind when someone says, hey, you know what? we have budget. We've been talking about this for a while. Like let's no one, no one actually says like, let's move in market, but like when they have a triggering situation and they move in market and they decide to act on, on solving a problem, like if you can come to mind immediately, they go, Oh, I know like hockey sack solves that problem. Cognizant solves that problem. Like w without them having to go to Google and, and search for, you know, data suppliers or, you know, marketing analytics for B2B. Yeah. Like, just ha it's such a massive advantage to um, reaching people and building memories that they recall you when they move in market, um, just getting into that consideration set. Like literally, if you can do that really well, then it takes so much pressure off of everything you do. Um, and then everything you do that follows, so all, all that in-market activity you do, if you've done a good job of building strong recall and memory so that people remember you when they move in market, then when they move in market, then all of that stuff has much more of an impact. Like it works harder. Like they're going to see their ads and say, yes, I know Cognizant. Like they're in my consideration set, like, boom, like, let's go there. Like all that stuff just works harder. Um, and especially when we, when we bring in like this element of like trust as well and reaching people before they move in market, I, I mean, it's just a recipe for long-term growth. I think the last thing I would say there is, is when you're thinking about building memories with people before they move in market, if you just break down the size of the buying pool that you're marketing to, like out, out market, we, we've all, I think most people at this point have probably heard the 95 five rule where, you know, it's just a general heuristic. It's not, yeah. it's not exactly accurate for everybody, but say we can, we can safely assume that most people in most market, you know, 95%, 96%, 94%, whatever that actually is, that they're not in a buying position. And that only a small percent, one to five percent, are in looking in market looking to buy right now. So when you're when you're talking about this strong memory brand building stuff, you're you're reach you're talking about reaching that that ninety five percent, which is a massive audience, right? Like the the people who are gonna buy from you in the future versus the people who are in market today, like that that audience dwarfs the amount of people, like I said, who are in market today. Yeah. So um so just just on a numbers side, like marketing to a much bigger pool of potential buyers is gonna pay off down the road because there's just more people. I mean it's just simple math. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's the thing sometimes when 
especially when I was coming across some of these ideas, like properly exploring them for the first time, is like in simple terms, I think like it just boils down to like you're going after the bigger portion of the market that's not ready to buy. Um, and you need to be in a consideration set when those people do go in market when they go when they go to buy. Um, and it's about carefully crafting like the right associations. And like I think that can sometimes be a word that can confuse people, but it's just like you explained where it's just about like they can associate you with the problems you solve so they can easily yeah. test that and you're easily recalled and it, you're going to be easily remembered in that situation. Um, and I think that's like a really helpful yeah. way to think about it. Cause it, it, like, I think sometimes for a marketer, when they sort of like access these ideas for the first time can be overwhelming, but it's very much as simple as like, you want to be easily remembered. Um, and it, the best way to do that is to be associated with the right problems and the right outcomes. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, like, we, we could plug Jenny Romaniak from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, who she's done her work on category entry ports, like uh, entry points, CEPs. Yeah. I pretty much think uh, like a category entry point is essentially like when so there's a buying trigger, someone something happens in someone's life where there's a, a now they're ready to move in market. Um, and like, what are those different triggers? that you can associate yourself with so that when they happen in the buyer's mind that they think of you, that's a great shortcut for like building associations. Cause a lot of brands are probably thinking, well, what should we associate ourselves with? And, and associations like a really big spectrum from like broad to narrow, like you can associate yourself, for, for example, Cognizant, like you, you're, you have associated yourself with demand generation broadly, right? But you're not selling demand generation, you're selling data to help demand generation marketers do their job. So, so that's a more narrow association you want to create as well. But you can, it's, you have to broadly associate yourself with the category that you sell. That's a good idea. Um, but also too, like thinking about and talking about these category entry points, like what are, like, what are some of the time, what are the situations that arise that people may need to buy from you? Um, different times of the year, it could be like one, one good example is of a category entry point would be like using a B2C example, Coca-Cola. Um, like does Coca-Cola want to associate, associate themselves with like soft drinks? That's, that's one that, that would be like Cognizant associating yourself with demand generation or what's better. Would they want to associate themselves with, um, you know, something that's cold and refreshing on a hot summer day. Mm -hmm. Like that's a very, that's a, that's a situation where someone's like, picture a buyer, a, a customer who's in Southern California, where I live, it's very hot in the summer. And you're like, wow, like I need to quench my thirst here. Imagine like at that very moment, Coca-Cola Coca comes to your mind. Like that's a, that's a pretty deep association right there that marketing can help establish. And, and, um, Coca-Cola, you know, spends a lot of money over, <laughs> over a hundred years to build those associations. But but yeah, so it's important to think about associations as a spectrum, broad to narrow, and then also thinking about like category entry points. Like what are those triggers? Like those things that happen in people's lives that cause them to move in market and how can you associate yourself with those ones? Yeah, let's actually just dial back to, um, so I think when we talk about memory and building memory structures and trying to be remembered when buyers go in market, like obviously like, that all sounds great, but I think we can actually dive into, and you've just dived into a little bit, I think with the category, category entry points discussion as well. Let's talk about how can a marketer actually do that? Like how does a marketer actually influence that? Um, and like what do they actually go and do? Um, and I suppose, yeah, I'd be interested to sort of get your take on like, what does a marketer do to actually influence that and optimize towards that? 
Yeah. So I, I, the first one would uh, obviously, like we talked about is the category entry points. It's, it's figuring out which associations you want to create on this, this spectrum from broad to narrow. And then also keeping in mind that, um, a lot of these associations are competitive as well. So your, your competitors might want to associate themselves with them as well. So you have to be, you have to, you have to understand like which, what, what your buyers associate you, you with already. And then what, what do they associate your competitors with already? And you want to try to go after associations that, um, you know, you can own, right. Where someone's not like, you, you don't want to go after, like, if you're a, a CRM and you're trying to like, you, you would, you'd want to, I don't know if this is a good example, but I'm, I'm riffing right here, but <laughs> I was going to say, if you're competing against Salesforce, I'm like, if number one, if you're competing against Salesforce and you're thinking about entering the market, just don't do it. But, yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but like, you'd still have to broadly associate yourself with like cloud CRM, but like, do you, like, can you really own like an association of cloud CRM in a way that like, you're going to be able to like create some strong memories with that? in a way that like Salesforce hasn't already, like probably not, like you're gonna have to find a, another set of associations, whether that's like, um, a building association about like who you're for, like when you're best to use, like maybe you're, maybe you're a very specialized CRM. Um, this gets into positioning as well. I, I, I think like as a product marketer, mm. I think, we, um, I think product marketers spend a lot of time overthinking positioning, but positioning is really like your main association layer, in my opinion, like, w like what, what are the main things we want to associate ourselves with? And then like, how can we wrap that up in a message and, uh, and carve out a little space here? And that becomes your position. But, um, so CEPs at the top, um, as far as, as, as memory, like we're talking about emotion and memories. And, and I guess we really haven't talked about like, why, why do emotion and memories work so well together? Or why, why is emotion so important to memory? And the reason is I'm going to pull on my science hat here, but, uh, <laughs> I'll probably, I'll probably botch this. Um, but, but the, technically this is what happens. So um, if you think about, if you think about your life and you think about all the memories that stick out, they're typically traumatic situations. Like you can remember the first time you broke your arm, you can remember, um, you know, something horrific that happened when you were seven or, or they're, they're, they're very like like a very emotional filled moments, like your first kiss, right? Where it's like, well, everybody remembers their first kiss. Cause that was like an overflow of strong emotions, right? Yeah. The reason why that happens and the reason why we can't look back and just remember anything, you know, is cause our brain is, is better at remembering things when emotion is involved. That's because the amygdala, here comes my science hat. I hope I don't, I hope I don't butcher this, but <laughs> no, I got the amygdala. The amygdala, which is the emotional processing part of your brain, um, what, what, emotional events activate your amygdala, the emotional processing part of your brain, at the same time that it activates your hippocampus, which is like the episodic memory part of your brain. So they do this at the same time. And because of that, it results in your amygdala enhancing attention and perception which helps our hippocampus store memories more effectively. That's, that's kind of like the science behind why emotion is so tied to memory because, because there's parts of the brain are actually working together when emotion is activated. It's actually helping your, your memory processing part of the brain, which is your hippocampus work, work harder. So, um, so zooming out, uh, you know, full circle here talking about, we talked about CEPs. We talked about like, how can we be more memorable, but, uh, 
now we're given the reason why emotion is so important to being memorable. Memorable. Now it just becomes about how can we think about making our marketing more emotional, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean moving people to tears. It could, but in most cases, it doesn't, right? Most cases, we're not trying to make people like so like filled with like sadness or love or admiration that they're like crying, right? Though you've seen probably examples of that in good marketing, yeah. um, where there's like some really good sense. SaaS brand to get people in tears, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so yeah, it becomes a question of how can we, how can we use emotion in our marketing more? Um, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. I think, I think if you, if you adopt from a B2C standpoint, like humor is the easiest way to do it. Um, you can leverage like emotions like humor, surprise or nostalgia or empathy. These are all really good ways to like bake emotion into what you're doing. But like humor is a really good way to like add levity to a situation and make people feel like happy. Um, it, it's a great way to attach in and in a pretty easy way to attach um, your message to like this emotional vessel. The problem with humor is that everybody does it. So mm. how do you be distinct in your humor? I think that's really where you win. If you look at like some of my favorite BDC examples are um, uh, Old Spice, for example, like that, that Old Spice campaign that ran for years where it was like this, the manly man. That was very much, and I, I don't know how how much um, the UK audience is going to relate to that. I don't know if it aired there, but we, we <laughs> it was a very we did get okay. nice adverts, so I think most most UK listeners will will know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, cool, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, very unique style of humor there. Like that was a very like I think people have ripped that off since, but at the time that was like it was funny. It was tapping into like things that people felt emotional about, like manlyhood, like how you know men are supposed to be like you know not into fragrance and deodorant but like more manly man you know so it played on things that people have strong emotions about in a funny and unique way so they they pulled off humor really well there but i think in the b2b space where this where, where an easy first step and, and is is having a strong point of view and i, I think a, this isn't a new concept but I think this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Like, why do some things work when they do? Like, having a strong point of view about something works for a lot of reasons. But I think one of the reasons why it works is because if you can confront someone's worldview, if someone has a worldview about something, about their career, and about different things that influence how they do their job, um, and you can confront that worldview with something that challenges it, well, they're they're naturally they're 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 passionate about these different worldviews. It's hard to get somebody to change their mind, but when you can confront what could be wrong about their worldview and back it up with evidence with a strong point of view, then now you're tapping into, I call this like emotional logic where it's, yeah. it's very much a logical and rational conversation. Like have like posting on LinkedIn, a strong point of view about something. Um, but because you're tapping into people's worldviews and you're confronting things in maybe a contrarian way, things that they feel strongly about and passionate about, then you're able to kind of galvanize this emotional, this emotional vessel there, um, in a very rational way. So that, that's an easy way to, to be memorable and emotional in, in B2B. But, um, as far as like, it, this is, this is something that B2C has mastered, but as far as like what you can build in like to a, a typical, typical ad campaign, if you want to do a brand ad campaign, ad campaign that's building strong emotions um 
so that it can build strong memories and also creating associations. I think a really good way to do that, number one is using video because video is just a better medium for communicating emotion, especially if you're going to do some kind of story. Yeah. Um, but also, but also music, like music is so underrated. Like one of my favorite ads of all time has like three words in it. And the, the rest of it, it's a 30 second spot. The rest of it is just, just a really emotional song. It's from a song from Sia, the, the chandelier song, which is like, it just like it charges you with emotion and the music in the ad does all of the emotion building, right? Yeah. It's, it's creating emotion in you while you experience the story in the ad. And then it kind of galvanizes, like I mentioned this, 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 this emotional vessel that's like galvanizing the memory as well. So, um, there's a lot of things that we could talk for days on, I guess, techniques. Um, if you want to keep going, I can give yeah. some more. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking for, for the listeners, actually, just to do a little recount of, of what we just yeah. talked about, because obviously there's a lot yeah. of that there. So I think in terms of actually for the audience, I suppose, to summarize, in terms of trying to do marketing that's going to um, help you be remembered in buying situations, going to help you be remembered when buyers go market. Um, first of all, you want your brand marketing to own a category entry point. Um, I'm going to have you help me along here, Drew, just in case I do get- Or, or I would say on category entry points, not just one. Like the, the idea is to build like as many as you can. Like you really want to, you really want to build and distribute, you know, category entry points and memories linked to those as, as broad as you can get them. As many as you can go. Okay, keep going. I won't cut you off anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, cut me off at every point. It's ADHD, yeah. <laughs> I just want to make it nice and clear so make sure everyone understands. Yeah. I do think these are really valuable ideas. And once you start getting them, it, it's I think it's really, really helpful. But to own yeah. category entry points, um, to, and that helps you build the right associations and the marketing you're doing is relevant and building the right associations. So you're more likely to be remembered. Um, when you're actually creating those campaigns, creating that content, creating that message, make it emotionally driven. Um, you need to connect with them on an emotional level because it basically stimulates the brain in the way you just described and makes it easier for them to access that memory because of you've triggered that response. Um, and to do that, you can use things like you just said, things like video, things like music, there's lots of techniques and, and ways to try and sort of stimulate that. Um, and then in terms of actually, um, I don't think actually, I'm just trying to think if there's any other points we should cover off there. I don't know if there's anything I've missed. Uh, yeah, I think, um, just, just tapping into emotion, emotions like humor and surprise and empathy and nostalgia is a, is a good little shortcut. I think humor is an easy one, but mm. depends on, on how professional you want to stay in, in your, um, B2B space for sure. But yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Perfect. Um, that's actually a good question to lead on to, um, just very quickly. Oh yeah! I just have balloons fly up on the screen. I'm not sure how that happened. What is that? <laughs> uh, we're using a new platform today, listen. Um, and I've just had balloons fly up on the screen. But we're moving on. Um, yeah, just balancing out um, being a professional B2B brand and using emotional um, marketing and doing some of the more brand-heavy stuff that you typically don't see in in B2B. Like what is yeah. the balance to be struck there? Have you got any advice for marketers to sort of toe that line? Yeah, I would say if you're if you're concerned about maintaining a professional image image and in some parts of B2B, that's more important than others. Uh, I totally get that. I think early in my career I was like, oh, that's stupid. Like 
don't worry about that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, it actually matters. You, you don't want to, there's, there's some industries where you just have to maintain that professionalism. You don't want to jump into some kind of humor to try to build some emotions that's like farcical and makes you look unprofessional. Right. So I think if you're worried about that, or you need to, you need to think about that, then you can leverage some of those more serious emotions. There's, there's a lot of, I can't think of any good example. There's so few good examples of, of really good brand building in B2B, like mm -hmm. brand building advertising. Um, but there's certainly like, I think about like GE, for example, like and I haven't engaged with their content for a while, but they did a lot of very emotionally driven storytelling around their customers, spotlighting their customers and like just not even necessarily associated with, um, a specific, you know, service or, or product that they were selling. Um, but like broadly associated with like the category that they were, they were trying to sell to a lot of really good storytelling with like some very serious undertones where it was like, um, you know, farmers cause, cause GE does a lot of stateside, at least GE sells a lot of, they, they're in a lot of different industries. one of the big one is, is agriculture. But mm. I remember seeing like a series, this was years ago where they were interviewing like farmers and like talking about struggles that farmers were having. And it's like a very, for a farmer to see that that's a very emotional chord you're going to strike because they're experiencing it, right? It's a lived experience of your buyer um, where there's like this source of tension or contention or uh, just a place where you can build empathy. Um, I think that th that's a good place to go. Just think about more serious emotions that you can leverage, right? Maybe it is moving people to tears, right? And versus just like yeah. some slapstick comedy thing, right? That's one thing. Um, the next thing I would say is that, you know, it's, you have like there's oh, well actually before i say this i would say that we we talked about that emotional logic thing um that that's a good place to be right if you want to stay professional think about like chris walker i think everybody probably listening to this in the b2b demand gen space is gonna know chris walker so he's a good example to talk about here but like, yeah. think about what he was able to i don't think anybody's gonna look at chris walker and be like well like he's tapping into like uh humor and like surprise and like like in a traditional like b2c like brand building way he doesn't do any of that stuff, but he's, he's very logical and precise in his point of view, but it's, it's an emotional point of view that in that he's addressing every, every, every point that he thinks people are wrong about. He is, he is addressing and backing it up with evidence in this like very emotionally logic way with a strong point of view that's able to tap into like these dominant, like feelings that people have about their career and demand gen already. And then confronting those, making them step back and think about those things in a way that like is, is confronting their worldview as well. Um, that's a great way to, to be rational, logical, professional, but also like try to layer in some emotion. Yeah. I can and then, uh, a great example. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just, just, just touching on it. Just, just thinking about really like, especially when I first started watching a lot of Chris Walker stuff, I think a lot of markets had a similar experience where, I think the reason he drew people in wasn't just because the arguments were were often very good and and like really made sense. I think what drew a lot of people in was that he talked about topics and he talked about it in a way um, that really touched on a lot of the the basically a lot of the nonsense that we experience day to day yeah. marketers and articulated yeah. it in a way where you felt yes that this guy gets it like he's like almost in my head and having the narrative that you have day to day in your head is like why am I doing this? Why are we doing that? this doesn't work. Yeah. It's really marketing. Um, and I right. think that was what made him so successful, not just the fact that they were carefully and 
um, well thought out answers and arguments. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like I, I call these contrarian, contrarian truths. Like when I'm thinking about, like we, we develop, developing, working on point of view for hockey stack as well. Like, like there, there's like you have, you can't just have a point of view that agrees with everybody on everything. Like you really have to look for the the point of misunderstanding in your industry to where there's a group of people who believe strongly one way and a group of people who feel strongly another way and they're opposing each other. So there's a look for those opposing views. That's where people have strong emotions. And then how can you find the answer, right? If you can work hard to find the best answer about those opposing opposing views, then you, you have a recipe and you have to back it up with evidence. Like, it, like Chris, Chris Walker did a really good job of that. Like he literally was like, let's find all these po points where there's opposing views, lead gen versus demand gen, like dark social versus, you know, whatever, um, like self attribution versus, uh, software attribution. Like where are all these points of opposing view? And then how can I, how can I really bring in a, a contrarian, but true backed by evidence point here. Like, so it's a very sound argument that forces somebody to, someone's in that camp of uh lead gen, like Chris Walker hits them with their, his demand gen point of view, which is very sound, very backed up, very evidence-based. And it's like, damn, it's hard to disagree with. Right. And it's going to, it's coming up against my, say I'm a lead gen guy. It's coming up against my lead gen point of view, but he's confronting that in a way that's like, Ooh, like it's, I, it's forcing me to change the way I, I feel and think about the way I do my job, yeah. which is like cutting, cutting to the core of like emotion. Like it, it's, like I said earlier, it's hard to change someone's mind. Um, cause people don't easily want to admit they're wrong, but if you can get somebody to admit that they're wrong and it back it up with strong evidence, like that, to me, that's like a very, that's a, that's a shortcut to building strong emotions through rational marketing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that links back to what you said earlier about like, it's not about necessarily because I think whenever the word emotion is brought up, it's like it has connotations to like, literally, like you said, bringing people to tears, when it's not about that, it's about making yeah. you feel something and something relevant. Um, yep. And that is what makes a message and adds a campaign um, memorable. And that's what helps you yeah. access it later on. And that's what the whole thing's about, basically, which I think is why it's so important. And that's why we're having a discussion is that that's why memory and emotions, not like a soft, fluffy topic. It's about ultimately driving business results, because that's what people access when they buy it. And I think that's really right. important for marketers to, to remember, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. How are we doing for, for time, Drew? Are you, are you okay to stick around for a few more minutes? Or? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I have I have my next meeting's at 11. We got an hour and 15 minutes. We're good. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, yeah, I'll just I will say, what, one thing I wanted to add. Yeah, let's keep going. Uh, one thing I wanted to add was, you know, we're talking about like emotional, memorable messaging, but like, let's talk about the balance of it. Cause it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean all your messaging has to be emotional. Mm -hmm. There's a, a very good space for that educational, um, rational, logical stuff. Um, a, a very big, very big space for it, quite honestly. But um, the way I approach the emotional stuff is like we talked about point of view. That's a good, if you're, if you're going to be like on LinkedIn, or you are going to be educating your audience? Like, how can you really get to that point of view? But also if you want to do like brand ad camp, like true brand ad campaigns that are like, Hey, we've got a specific set of associations that we want to communicate. Like we want people to know this about our brand right now or our product. 
And we want to do it in a very highly visible, highly, you know, universally relevant way that's going to reach people and get remembered. Then you can save those for like what I'd call like a brand activation, not a brand activation where you're doing like an event or something, though it could be, but like a brand campaign where, um, like you want to, like, like I said, you want, you, you have a very specific part of your message you want to communicate. And maybe there's five or six of those things, right. That you've identified as the core associations that you want people to remember. Well then put those five or six, like think about those differently when it comes to your brand marketing and be like, okay, we can really think about, about these five or six core associations that we want to build memories around and do things differently for those, right? We can still feed those into our point of view on our educational content, but like, how can we do things that are highly distinct, emotional, like funny, humorous, whatever, whatever level of emotion you want to play on. Um, for those specific things, that, that's how I think that's how you find your balance, right? Where it's not everything needs to be emotional, not everything needs to be logical, but for the things that people need to know and that you've identified as they need to know most, then like let's let's sprinkle some emotion on those things. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and yeah, I just want to actually move into talking a little bit about um, awareness more holistically, um, and it's something I've seen yeah. you talk about. Um, online quite a lot and talk about that not all awareness is created equally um yeah and i think that's something that we're thinking about at cognizant and in general is that like it's to us it's not enough for the brand to be people just be aware of the brand like that's great yeah. <laughs> don't get me wrong it's great if people are aware of you that's the first yeah. step it's needed um but i think the way we're trying to look at it is we want to create a brand that is admired um but equally a brand that's relevant um, to our buyers as well. Um, so I suppose I'd just be interested to sort of get your take on if you agree with the, the take that um, being just awareness in, in and of itself isn't enough. Um, yeah. And if not what should we be aiming for? Yeah. Yeah. So awareness, like, like we've mentioned a couple of times, like the Salesforce example is a really good example of like an issue where just awareness, I think aware, I, I always say awareness without association is, is a waste of money, right. And a waste of time. So, um, there needs to be some situational awareness to the awareness that you're creating, right. It can't, it can't just be recognition. Like I think we'd call it in, in marketing, you could just call it recognition. Like if someone recognizes your name, that's one thing, but you know, uh, being remembered at the point of purchase there as someone who can help them. That's where the association comes in. I think, I, I think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with being wanting to be admired. Um, and be, be, being like a leader in your category from an educational standpoint, from a thought leadership standpoint, um, from just an original originality standpoint. Um, the, the thing with the, admir the, the word with admiration that, and this might not be how you guys are thinking about it, but just want to put this out there because a, a word like admiration feels a bit too romantic for me mm. only because only because in this b2b space you know over the last decade that i've been here there has been so much conversation around like building brand loyalty and brand loyalists and, and building relationships with buyers and that sounds nice but that's not really what happens or that's not really what's really important. Um, and I, I know people will disagree with this, but by and large, your buyers really don't care about you. It, we make up such a small yeah. portion of our buyers, a minuscule part of their day. If we make up a part of their day at all and when we're gone, nobody's going to remember us. So 
that's where I, where I, I, um, I just put out a, a warning, right. When it's yeah. like, Hey, we want to build relationships. We want to like be the most admired brand, um, in the category. Um, that that's all good, but just, just stay, stay anchored to the fact that like those relationships aren't real relationships. Like you don't need to go out and build one-to-one relationships, even though like LinkedIn is kind of changing that I will admit, like there is an element of building real, like digital relationships with people. Like I did, Jamie, I, I, I had a relationship with you, a virtual relationship with you for the last, you know, 18 months. And we've chatted through messaging. Like there is an element of real relationship there. But I think as far as like, as a marketing tactic is like, you know, again, with brand building, it's about building strong memories and associations more than um, necessarily creating admiration. Because here's another thing too is, is reach reach comes before everything. There'll be marketers that disagree with this too, which is totally fine. But this is my belief is that reach is much more important than resonance because it doesn't matter how resonant your content is um, if nobody knows it exists. So re- reach, I think, is number one. And then number number two is actually, so reaching, reaching a lot of people is number one. Number two would be um, like having a product or service that, that can benefit from them, right? Like having something they can sell. Like if you can reach people with something that they want, then the content doesn't matter. Like the, how resonant your thought leadership is, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I put that first. I, I always say that like the, 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 the more of like the deeper thought leadership stuff is a, a really good way to have a presence on channels like social media, right? It's, it's hard to imagine having any kind of social presence without putting out some really fundamental thought leadership there, right? Um, but is it the thought leadership that is creating people, creating buyers? Or is it the fact that the thought leadership gave you awareness, it gave you reach, and reach someone figured out that like oh i've been looking for that and then they came and bought from you like that that's a hard part about incrementality like measuring and marketing like what what's actually more important than deci- in the decision making process process and i don't know if we'll ever have that answer but i do know this that more of the time it's about just reaching somebody and them going oh i didn't know you existed i need something like that than it is about like oh that message right there is changing my life like yeah. i'm going to buy from you I kind of went on a rabbit hole tangent there. I don't no, know no, if I even... no, no, definitely. It's interesting to give you to give you some context yeah. to sort of how we're thinking about. It. Like, I definitely don't think that um, yeah. brands are particularly important, especially B two B brands um, in the day to day lives of buyers. I think the way we think about it is that we do we do want to build a brand that's liked and trusted, um, and separates us away from some of the pack. Which which you guys are doing a fabulous job of doing that already. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the way we think about it at the moment. Um, and I think that there's sort of like at the moment, just sort of thinking about um, moving forward is like that's like to us has been something that's brought us a lot of success. So we could want to continue being that brand that is liked and trusted, but completely agree with your point in terms of what you're saying is that ultimately without the first step, <laughs> without yeah. the reach, without the awareness, it's all pointless, <laughs> basically. So I completely take that on board. I think that's a completely fair point. Um, it's interesting. I actually want to touch on something else you said in terms of actually started measuring some of this stuff. Because I think this yeah. is where obviously people get very sort of tripped up and especially non-marketing yeah. people. When we start yep. talking about um, brand and reach and um, building memory structures, like it, it can be difficult to sort of tie that back. So, how would you start 
sort of thinking about measuring this activity and sort of like the stuff you're doing to drive some of this? Yeah. So there, there's a, there's this, uh, there's a, this thought that, uh, you know, most out market brand activities just really hard to measure and that it, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I think there's some truth to that where it's like, Hey, we can't measure everything precisely. Actually, we can't measure, we can't, me what I've learned at hockey stack in the first 90 days is like, you can't measure any, any, you can't measure anything precisely, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. So precision, precision may be a, something you want let's try to get more precise with our measurement but like perfection is never the goal because it's impossible but yeah um so there's some truth to like hey we can't really let's not obsess about measuring all this stuff because we've seen the science we know it works so if we can try to we can try to just emulate like what we know the science is telling us is working and give it some time um then sure maybe we don't have to measure, measure stuff precisely but but i think when it comes to brand activity and memories specifically I think we actually need to think, well, for memory, for example, associations and memory, I think we probably need to do some more really basic consumer research or consumer surveying, um, which a lot of B2C brands do, but I've never really seen make a strong footprint in B2B mm. where, Hey, if we want, if we've got these five associations, we really feel strongly about that the market needs to know about us and, and think about us with, then let's go, let's go get a baseline of how people, whether or not people are associating us with those category entry points, for example, now, and then let's put together this campaign, creative promotion, distribution, and measure it again in an, another nine months and see if we've influenced any of these different levers. I think that's a really good way to, in a simple way to, to just go back to basic surveying yeah. with association. So doing, doing those aided, unaided awareness, um, surveys but also like doing like a mental availability survey where you're like you're identifying those category entry points that you want to be associated with and, and then just asking people um but other than that you have to think about you have to think about brand anything long-term activity is like our uh, roi is a terrible metric to measure anything long term because it's not a it's not a long-term metric. ROI is a is a metric that was created in the accounting department and marketing kind of co-opted it from the finance department. But essentially, ROI is is about measuring short-term. Even though investments in the word ROI, return yeah. on investment, um, it's really just a short-term metric. It's about you know measuring you know whatever your short-term gain last year, short-term expense was. So it, it's not really fit for long-term marketing, but what is fit for long-term marketing is, is baseline growth. So when I say baseline, let's talk about baseline sales and revenue. This, this is my favorite way to, to measure brand activity, which isn't necessarily easy by the way, but mm. baseline revenue is revenue from sales that come to you organically or directly because people moved in market and they remembered you and they came directly to you. So there was there was mental availability in advance of purchase built and they move the market and they come reach out to you directly. That's, if you take a step back, that sounds like it's easy to measure, but it's actually hard to measure because there's a lot of people that come to you direct that could come from paid short-term campaigns as well. So how do you how do you weed those those people out? Which is something that Hockey Stack is, is doing with our modeling. We're, we're actually helping we're not there yet, but pretty soon we'll have, we'll be able to help buyers who use hockey stack, um, identify their baseline. So 
basically why baseline matters is because brand activity is all long-term and what baseline measures is the, the accrual over time of that past brand activity, right? Mm. Because stuff that we do in this first six months, even a year, we know that is going to have a longer term impact in year two, three, four, it accumulates, right? It accrues, right? So how do you measure that accrual? Well, if you see that baseline revenue going up, so revenue from sales that come to you directly, if you see that baseline moving up at a healthy rate over time, that's a good indication that on the aggregate, your, your brand activity is doing the right thing, right? You're reaching people, um, you're, you're reaching people in advance of purchase and more and more of those people are coming to you directly when they move in the market. Uh, it's not perfect, right? It's, it's hard. It'll be hard to measure which specific brand activity had the most influence, but I don't think it matters. I think we need to get away from like incrementality is, is this idea that w incrementality is basically the measure of like what would have happened or what happened specifically from a spe specific marketing activity. And if you took away that marketing activity, what wouldn't happen? Right. So you want to, you want to find incremental tactics, things that are delivering like net new growth, um, that are directly influencing it. But I think when it comes to brand, we have to look more at the aggregate level and we have to be okay with saying, Hey, this budget that we spent on these 10 different brand activities over the last year, uh, work together, even though we don't know how much influence each one of those had, because that's really hard to measure on an incremental level. Um, because we don't know that we could be okay with knowing that it, it's some, it's something's working, right? It's all working white or it's not right. And then if it's not that baseline isn't growing, then you can investigate deeper and try to figure out which one of those tactics isn't working. Maybe it's all, um, but yeah, ba baseline, baseline sales and revenue growth is huge, but then baseline growth of like anything like baseline growth in branded search traffic is a good leading indicator, right? Baseline growth in social media engagement, whether that's just likes or comments or shares or baseline growth in followers. Like that's really where like, th actually I think on, on social media, the, the baseline growth of engagement is a really good way to measure like this accrual of brand past brand act activity over time. Um, and then there's all kinds of leading indicators too. Like, like I mentioned, I, I think one of the ones that is pretty big right now is, um, share of search, which is essentially saying, Hey, if we compare ourselves next to our five biggest competitors and look at how many, um, branded search queries we get for our brand name over time. Um, if it's growing, like if that baseline branded search volume is growing, then that's a good indication that more and more people are discovering our brand. So that's a really easy leading indicator. Just pull up Google trends, put in your brand name and look at over time, since you've been running brand campaigns, like is branded search volume going up? You can find some of that data in Google search console as well. Um, yeah, I think those are, those are the big ones. I think, I think that's actually a really important point to draw, especially for brands that are not huge, like massive, um, corporates or like big, massive enterprises. Like, I think one of the things that can be intimidating about the idea of running brand activity and committing to brand activity is the idea of like, how am I going to measure all this? Like that is obviously the first sort of question that comes to mind. But I think of some of the things you outlined are things that any brand and any marketer can measure and things like based on sales growth, share of search. Um, and even like in terms of the surveys and stuff like that, yeah. is time consuming and it's not something that's taken up much in B2B at the moment. 
but I do think that's something that like it is actionable and it is something you can do. Um, so yeah. it, there are avenues available to you. And I think another important point you drew was that, and especially coming from Hockeystack, because obviously that's you're in the business of measurement that yeah. I think nothing is perfectly measurable, but you are, yeah. you are looking for the indicators that are going to give you what you need to make decisions. And that's basically what it boils down to. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I look at, what I what I've learned really quick is that I didn't know nearly anything about measurement like I thought I did before I got here. <laughs> but in the first ninety days, I've learned a lot. And you know, a me- measurement should really be about experimentation. Mm. And measurement is is really about measurement is is the best measurement is about unifying, combining different measurement methodologies, whether that's incremental lift testing. Um, marketing mix modeling, different types of predictive modeling, um, or attribution, like you can model attribution data, you can do a lot of different things. So if you can, if you can cross reference with more methods, you can find better answers, but also knowing that definitive, definitive, a definitive answer isn't what you're looking for. It's really more about experimenting to find insights that you can probe deeper on. Like it's, it's really almost measurement becomes like a diagnostic tool where it's like, Hey, we've got a pretty good idea that this is true let's, let's validate it with this model or let's validate it with incremental lift testing. And I know some people are probably listening to this going like, what the hell is incremental lift? What is marketing mix model? And that's, that's something for more enterprise brands or, or mid market brands. Um, but for smaller brands using attribution, using self reported attribution, um, doing surveys, like we mentioned, looking at those leading indicators, like branded search volume, there's some, there's some good data out there that's ac- accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that can give you a, a, it's directional. Like it's not, it's not, um, you can't measure marketing contribution technically. Like I said, you can't say each one of these activities is giving 10% to growth, 5% growth. Nope. You're not gonna be able to do that with that stuff, but it's directional and telling you, Hey, we either are, or we're not going in the right direction. And that's important because you need to know whether or not you're moving in the right direction. Cause if, if you can know that, then you can now probe deeper and you can figure out why. Um, the other thing too, I think holding people back from measuring good brand marketing is the time, the time frames that we're measuring it in. Like that's, that's the, the lowest hanging fruit is like, if you're going to measure the performance of your brand activity in a, in a window of six months, like forget it, it's never going to look like it's working. And this happens all the time. Like this happens all the time where a brand's going to say, Hey, we've been doing this brand activity. Um, we're comparing it in a six month window and we're looking at our short-term in-market paid activity and our paid activity is destroying it. We've got more leads. They're converting higher. It's costing us less. It's more efficient. Like why the hell should we keep spending on this? It's not working. And then what happens is they stop spending on the brand activity and in six months later, maybe someone will come, Hey, let's try this again. They'll, They'll do it again and, and rinse and repeat to where you're never giving your brand activity long enough to like, you're never making the time frame of measurement long enough to where you can see if it's working yeah. so that you're wasting money doing it. And then you stop and then you start again and you stop, you start again. It never gets momentum. It never builds. And you're just, you're just burning money. So, and this is hard for, hard for, I want to say marketers, but hard for, you know, CFOs, CEOs, CMOs to, to really chew on is that like, Hey, if you're going to measure brand activity, like you don't want to measure baseline sales and revenue growth over six months, because it's going to probably be very small, right? And it's going to look like that in-market activity is killing it. But you do want to measure it over nine months to a year. Like you really have to wait 
that much to get some actionable data on whether or not your brand activity is working because that's how it works it works over the long term you know which is tough for people to to really it's not tough for people to understand it's tough for people to bring into the board meeting and justify what they're doing because nobody has patience for the board meeting <laughs> you know yeah and to, which, which get that, to get that yeah. stuff implemented like to, to bring that to a board meeting to then get it implemented and then keep it keep it sold internally that is obviously the challenge um yeah but that is that 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 is a comes down to a lot of internal marketing um mm-hmm. and hopefully some some very yeah, true forward-thinking um executives as well because um, i do think that is obviously important I would say on that note, like a, a good way to to do some internal marketing is to get privy with the data that's the science that we've been talking about on this yeah. this podcast right now. It's there. Print it out and show it to them, right? I think where marketers get wrong, when, when B2B marketers do look at some of this data we're looking at from Ehrenberg Bass Institute or from Les Bennett, Peter Field, and the Econometrician Group, um, I think where they get it wrong is that a lot of their, a lot of their their research is pointed towards TV and advertising and, and fast moving consumer goods brands. And they go, well, I'm, I'm not a FF FMCG brand. I'm not selling, you know, Heinz ketchup on a, in a retail store and I don't do TV ads. None of this stuff is relevant, relevant for me, which couldn't be farther from the truth because what they're telling you is that th- what the data is telling us and the data set that they're looking at through the people who are running TV ads, right, for these specific brands is that these TV ads are working because they're building mental availability, they're building strong emotions, they're building strong associations, right? They're reaching people in advance of purchase. Like they, they've codified why it's working. And all those things are relevant for B2B, even if you're not doing uh, TV advertising, right? I think so. I think what marketers need to understand is that like TV, like digital, is just a medium, it's just a medium. Like your brand activity, no matter what medium you're doing it on, whether it's organic through a blog, whether it's an advertisement on LinkedIn, whether it's a TV ad, it still needs to do the same things. Like it still needs to build that mental availability and emotion and strong memories and associations. Like it all needs to do that. So so I would say, yeah, get get privy with the data. Use that data to show your leaders that aren't buying into this. Like, hey, there's evidence. Like there, there's lots of evidence showing how this actually works over the long term. Like Let's just believe if we don't, if we can't measure it ourselves, that's one thing. That's fine. Let's, let's, let's just believe, let's just believe this for a second, right? It may not all be hundred percent on the point accurate, but let, let's follow this guideline that they've already put a lot of money and a lot of years of research into, to, uh, you know, distilling for us. Let's just, just follow the the framework. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Definitely. Um, I just say, to be fair, we are, we are, this has flown by. <laughs> We're just got- <laughs> Oh, wow. I know. Um, yeah. I'd, yeah. To be fair, I'd like to wrap up the final question, okay. and uh, we'd like to ask this at the end of the podcast. Um, what would you What would you recommend for marketers to stop and start doing um, in twenty twenty three and moving into twenty twenty four? Oh man, start and stop doing <laughs> that is a lot. What would I say? Well. Well, here, here how, how can I tie in hockey stack here and, and brand marketing? Okay. So, um, just because this is, let's talk about the measurement part real fast, because this is, this has been such a illumination for me. And I found in a very short period of time, talking to a lot of different marketers and a lot of different levels and different specialties that, that they, like a lot of marketers have this flawed view 
not intentional. It's just, it's just a flawed view because we're not data scientists. That's not our background. Right. So, so we have this flawed view about how marketing measurement should go. Um, and that is that, you know, if a certain method of measuring marketing isn't definitive, isn't a hundred percent statistically significant, isn't, you know, you know, perfectly precise and accurate, then it's not worthy. And, and that's actually not like, I've talked to quite a few data scientists, like a, a lot actually. And we, we've got, we got some really strong data science on, on our team as well, but talking to all of them, everybody's like, yeah, like, like measurement is about experimentation. It's not about finding a definitive answer. It's about finding an answer that can point you in the right direction and, and help you get to a place that is better than before. So knowing, knowing that if we're going to do software-based attribution, if we're going to look at our platform analytics, if we're going to do self-reported attribution, if we're going to bring in, you know, incremental lift testing, which is essentially using control groups versus treatment groups and having a holdout group in the control group that doesn't see the activity. So you can measure how much influence that treatment group actually has, or whether you're doing modeling. So like we're, we're client or yeah. Ooh, I almost mentioned my last company. Um, <laughs> hockey stack, <laughs> hockey stack does is doing modeling for our mid market and enterprise companies too. predictive modeling and marketing mix modeling, but you need large data sets to make the marketing mix modeling work. Um, if, if you're using all those different methods, you should be, you should be looking to combine all these different methodologies because all of them have holes. They all have gaps, right? Like attribution can't measure everything. It's biased towards short-term in-market stuff. Um, but it's really, it's a really good real-time directional tool. You can find some really good stuff there, but it's got limitations, right? Incremental mm -hmm. lift testings. Like it's a really good way to find true marketing influence. Like how much each touch point has in like each touch point or activity has influence. Um, but it's hard to create like really precise control versus treatment groups where you can, you're, that control group, that experiment you're running is very scientific. It's hard to do that. So there's always yeah. going to be some bleed that like creates some error in the data. Uh, and then modeling, modeling is a, a great way to measure incrementality as well. But again, it, it's like, it requires more money to do. It requires a lot of historical data to make work. So there, there's flaws there too. So I think it's about triangulating results by combining different methods and losing this mentality that like, oh, just because something's not perfect that we shouldn't do it. We really should be looking to combine different marketing measurement methodologies and experimentation to find a better answer than we've ever found before so that we can be in a better place than we've been before. That's kind of my my two cents, which I which I think has been a, a like I said, it's been an eye-opening approach to to measurement. Cause I, I was part of that camp, that previous camp too, where I'm like, ah, like this isn't perfect. Then th we got to find something else. Like this isn't, but if you keep thinking, looking for perfect in measurement, you're, you're not going to measure anything because it doesn't exist. I think that's a great two cents to end on. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really interesting yeah, point. Um, I think it's something that's like actually quite refreshing for a marketer to hear, to be honest, because I think yeah. definitely thinking that if we just had another report, another way of looking at the data, another way that everything would be perfect, but ultimately it boils down to nothing's perfect. So I think that's actually quite brilliant. Yeah. In a way. yeah take some pressure off yourself. Like you don't, you're not going to find the perfect answer because it doesn't exist, you know, but, but think about it. Like if you can get, if you can get 60% better than you are today without getting to hundred percent accuracy, like what could that do? What could that do for your business? You know what I mean? If you have 60% better data, like that's huge, that's huge. So yeah. yeah.
Okay, right. Well, we're clocking in right just now. over an hour. Um, I think <laughs> up there. today's been uh, a really interesting conversation. Drew, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's been great. Really appreciate it. Love being here, man. Thank you. It was it was awesome to chat with you in person for the first time. Definitely, yeah. And hopefully we have you back <laughs> on um, and can we continue the conversation. But um, we'll do that, a three hour. Yeah, three hour one next time <laughs> <laughs> um yeah thank you all for listening old listeners uh today um looking forward to um having you back on the next loop podcast drew thanks again for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time you got it take care guys